Well, hello everyone. Welcome to the 33rd MBT Fireside Chat. We are recording this one on Sunday the 28th of May 2017. Now, earlier this week, the heinous attack in Manchester, United Kingdom, uh, obviously my home country, and a city we plan on bringing Tom to early next year. Um, our hearts and thoughts do go out to all those affected by this and any other such events. Um, good afternoon, Tom. Listen, what should people be doing in light of these events? How should they be going on their everyday lives? They've got to carry on, right? Absolutely. They have to carry on. You know, things happen and we get to deal with it. And by the quality that uh, we deal with it, that's that's our choice making. We evolve or de-evolve based on that. That quality. So if you were to uh, recede and try to find a hole to crawl into and, and hide and are very fearful, then that would not be probably the best choice. You need to be smart. You know, don't uh, let yourself open for, for uh, you know, put yourself in obvious danger. But meanwhile, you just go on with your life. Um, there's lots of things we can't control. And when we can't control them, we have to be a little wary of them, perhaps, if they're risky. But to live in fear constantly, something awful is going to happen, uh, is just not a good idea. When you live like that, then everything kind of gets dark and cloudy, and you live in a, in a small, uh, unhappy space. And that's counterproductive to your growth. So what are the, the people who perpetrate these acts, what do they, what do they hope to achieve? I, I mean, I don't really understand it. You know, they, they try to create chaos, but surely it just brings people closer together. You're asking a question, uh, in, essentially trying to ask, you know, what's rational about the act? You know, what do they hope to achieve? What, what are their plans and so on? I think one would, you know, I would anyway uh, kind of conclude that it's not a rational act. You know, it's not an act to produce a particular result. It's a it's a react just to make a statement. You know, it's not a it's not a plan so much as it is an expression, and uh, it it isn't really a a rational act because in the big picture, things like that aren't rational. That never gets anybody closer to their, you know, to their goals unless, of course, their only goal is chaos, and it does uh, create chaos. But other than that, uh, everybody loses those kind of events right well thanks tom i mean obviously like i say our hearts and uh, thoughts go out to anyone who's affected by those or any of the uh, the other atrocities that have happened across the world we do deal with it we deal graciously with uncertainty and move on and we are going to move on to the questions listen there was a question from james r that he emailed me last um couple of months ago that we didn't get around to last time donna didn't get to ask it so i'm going to ask it here um, he says, when scientists accept that we are in a virtual reality, I suspect that they're going to continue to insist that consciousness is an illusion, an illusion for an AI character instead of a biological brain, say. But what might they say about other theories, specifically the multiverse theory, with its need for unlimited storage? And also, what might they say about qualia? You know, they may say that consciousness is still an illusion, even though they accept it as a VR, but... That would be um, more obvious, you know, in the in the realm of denial than it would be in in scientific uh, logic. If they say this is a virtual reality, then that would mean that the body, the brain, everything physical, okay, everything about you, everything that's physical, is ones and zeros on a hard drive someplace, and it's a little hard to say that. 
you know, that that those ones and zeros are somehow conscious. We know ones and zeros on hard drives, you know, do not exhibit consciousness. So as soon as you say that it is virtual, you're saying it's a computed reality. It's just a simulation. And when you've said that, that logically excludes the the ones and zeros that, that uh, represent that simulation from being conscious. So, yes, they could say it, and some might, because, you know, denial is not beyond scientists. A lot of scientists say things because they're in denial. But it would be kind of a silly thing to say. It's a virtual reality. It's just ones and zeros on a hard drive. There is no, you know, the, the brain is a virtual brain. It's just a computed brain, but it creates consciousness just the same. That's... So obviously, denial and refusing to look at what virtual means, that I don't think that will last very long. Yes, denial is obviously going to happen, but that's only going to last a short time. You know, scientists are people who are very left brain, and denial's really not their main thing. Eventually, they will come around to see that that's foolish, and it doesn't make any sense whatsoever that uh, consciousness would have to be outside of the virtual system, you see, and just looking at, at our virtual reality games and so on, consciousness is always outside of the virtual system. So I don't think that'll last long. No doubt it will occur, but I don't think it's important. So it'll be the same thing. They still won't know where qualia came from because qualia doesn't come out of ones and zeros on a hard drive. So they'll have the same issues that won't make any sense. So other than just, um, you know, pig-headed uh, denial, which will be obvious to anyone who has at least a, you know, a third-grade education and can think a little bit for themselves. I don't think that'll that'll be a big deal last long. Now, the second thing is that uh, though I haven't published yet, I've got one more experiment that I'm going to put out uh, on YouTube as soon as I have the time to write it down, and that will be an experiment that's a little different than the others that I've published. The others. Definitely, um, you know, the result definitely says this is a virtual reality because there's no way that if these experiments work the way I say they do, that you could come to any other conclusion other than, you know, it's a virtual reality. How else could you predict whether a photon will reflect or transmit, you know, through a piece of, of uh, half-silvered mirror? How would you be able to predict what a what a how a, a element would decay? So that says it has to be a computed reality. Again, surely people will deny it, but you know it's one of these things that uh, is silly to deny. But now I have one more experiment that will go a step further. It not only says that this is a virtual reality, but it also conclusively shows that consciousness is the computer. And once this experiment is done, if it works the way I think it will, there will be no other conclusion that one can draw if this experiment works, as I say, other than consciousness is the computer. So that'll be one more reason not to go into denial because there'll be experimental evidence to the contrary. But even without that experimental evidence, <laughs> there's logic to the contrary. Thank you, Tom. And yes, we are going to go to you, Eric. You have two que uh, connected questions, consciousness during deep sleep and sleepwalking. So it's all yours. Okay. Uh, so I'll just read my first question about sleepwalking. 
which I thought would be interesting to look from from an uh, MBT perspective. Uh, so the question is, does MBT offer an explanation for the mysterious phenomenon of sleepwalking? It occurs during slow wave sleep of non-rapid eye movements sleep cycles, and the activities performed can be very complex, such as cooking or creating arts or driving or even homicide. And so I was wondering why and how would such things happen according to MBT? Is there any consciousness or free, w uh, free will involved in this kind of behavior? Or are sleepwalking people for some reason being played as non-player characters? You know, I'm not an expert on sleepwalking and the, and the scientific details that go with it, but sleepwalking would appear to me to be where the consciousness is aware and um, operating, making choices. And normally, that would just be the consciousness being aware because the body's asleep. The body isn't being triggered. The muscles aren't moving, but the consciousness is aware. That's what happens during dreaming, right? You dream, the consciousness is aware, the consciousness is doing things, but the body's just lying there. But sometimes the body responds to the consciousness. Sometimes that, that signal gets sent, I guess, a larger uh, conscious system, uh, you know, the, the um, what do we call it? The VRRE, the virtual reality rendering engine, gets that signal and starts to animate the the um, avatar. Now, why that would happen, I don't know. Maybe we could say a, a glitch in the system, that that uh, signal goes out, the VRRE gets it, and starts to animate the avatar to do those things. So that would be one way that we could say it. Now, you just mentioned the fact I didn't know, and that's that this happens in a deep sleep, not in a REM sleep. It happens in a, in a place where there is no, uh, uh, you know, we associate the REM with dreaming. People who are having REM sleep tend to dream. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that people who aren't having REM aren't doing anything. You know, another one of your questions, I think, or somebody's question, is that what's what's the consciousness doing, you know, when the uh, avatar is, is uh, not responding? You know, okay, in a, in a dream, the consciousness is getting the data stream for the dream rather than the data stream for, for this physical virtual reality. And, but in that part where dreaming isn't taking place, what's that consciousness doing? Well, it's, it could just be sitting there waiting for the avatar to come back to where it can, can operate. But I doubt that that's the case. That would kind of be a waste of time. In other words, we do that some in our video games. You know, sometimes our elf loses hit points or loses a spell, but they only lose it for a certain amount of time. And we just have to wait a while until they get their health back or their energy back or their spells back. So sometimes we, the player, the consciousness, just kind of sitting around, you know, wasting time waiting for regeneration to occur. And our consciousness could do that too. But I think not because that would be eight hours or not eight. You had to subtract all the dreaming time. It would be all the non-dreaming time that the consciousness would just be sitting there waiting for the avatar to come you know, to be responsive again. Well, I think that our our consciousness is probably operating on information, is probably solving problems, is overlooking things that have happened during the day, our experiences, 
what to make of him. How was that reaction? Was that a helpful reaction? Was that uh, you know a good way to think about the problem? And that's part of what I think we experience when we wake up from a good night's sleep and we're kind of refreshed. It's almost like a reboot. You know, we have all we're wound up in all kinds of details before we go to sleep. And this is the problem. And that's a problem. And how am I going to react to that? And what's this going to do? And then we wake up in the morning and all everything's better. You know, everything is kind of resolved. And we've, we're now back into a bigger picture and not so wound up in the details. And I think that's part of what happens when the consciousness isn't either in the dreams, you know, or in this reality is that it's kind of going over events and reactions and interactions and what was good about it and not good about it and ends up with a little bigger picture, not quite so wound up in the details so that uh, when the avatar is ready to go again and the sleep's over, the consciousness has had a bit of a rest and time for reflection as well as the body having a bit of rest in order to uh, revitalize itself according to the rule set. So now back to the sleepwalking. And perhaps during that time when the consciousness is operative, but neither dreaming nor, you know, making its avatar work, for some reason, the body actually gets animated by the virtual reality rendering engine, by the larger conscious system to move, to do things. And it's generally that doesn't happen. It's just consciousness thinking, consciousness sending out messages but consciousness not really, um, you know, the rendering engine isn't really taking those messages and implementing them uh, as far as making the avatar move around on the, on the screen, on the screen, you know, in our data stream is like on the screen. So I'd say there's a, there's a glitch there of some sort, or it's done on purpose because it creates another set of experiences for people to deal with. You know, so it could be something that the system does on purpose just so that person and other people will have to learn to deal with that. That's another another thing in our reality to deal with. So one of those two things, um, maybe a glitch, maybe the way that consciousness is thinking about what it's doing is... Um, you know, is is in such a way that somehow the VRRE um, gets confused and doesn't really know what's going on. It's got a lot of things to do. It's it's you know, it's uh, animating a whole lot of uh, of avatars at the same time, and it may just mess up occasionally. What do we have? Uh, just in the humans, we have seven and a half billion avatars that uh, you know the system has to has to run. Now, some of those, half of them are probably asleep at the same time, but most of those are dreaming, and the downtime that's not dreaming is a smaller part of the night, I think. And plus, there's all those conscious critters. A lot of those critters are night critters. They're out active during the night. So the larger conscious system and the virtual reality rendering engine is a busy is a, is a busy thing. It's got a lot to do, and I can see how sometimes it might just make mistakes. Now, if it just was a random mistake, then it wouldn't be that same people would do this all the time. Then it would just kind of randomly happen to people, but it wouldn't be the same people doing it. So that would make me think that there's some something about what that consciousness is doing that and it, that makes the, uh, the uh, rendering engine animate their avatar, or it's being done on purpose because it creates 
another thing to deal with. So I don't really know know why that is, but yes, the people making uh, doing what they're doing. Um, I don't know. You might say, well, if the system's just doing it to create a problem, then no, they wouldn't maybe be free will. They'd be like computer-generated characters at that point. If indeed it's the consciousness that's uh, doing that inadvertently, then they would have free will. So I don't know. You know it's an interesting question, and I don't have a I don't have a uh, a pat answer for it. Okay. But it ob- it obviously happens. Yeah. Yeah, and I've read that it's uh, it's uh, connected to uh, gene genetic defects as well, so it might have to do something with the avatar too. Yeah, well, the avatar may uh, you know the avatar is, is just ones and zeros. You know, it doesn't its genetics sets the constraints, but it doesn't set the action. You know, it just sets the constraints on the action. The consciousness creates the action, so it's it could be that certain avatars have constraints as far as what makes them move and what doesn't. And those constraints are very, very sensitive. So that the little things maybe that normally uh, dreaming or or a consciousness wouldn't trigger the motion, maybe that avatar has a constraint that's very, very, you know, close to the threshold and just a little bit more. and And the avatar actually gets up and starts moving around. So it could be a genetic issue like that, that the avatar is particularly sensitive uh, and does get uh, the motion or does get the uh, the um, message to get up and move even when that that signal is very very small so in that case we could posit that even when a person's dreaming those signals are really being sent to the avatar all the time but they're very very small so the avatar doesn't work on them doesn't doesn't implement them because they don't get above a certain threshold if that's the case, then some people have lower thresholds than others, and that's why they would get up and move. So we, maybe that's that's a way of answering all of those questions. It's a matter of the the uh, the rendering engine doesn't necessarily say, "Oh, this person's asleep, so I won't send signals to the avatar." That's probably too much trouble. It probably sends signals to the avatar all the time. It's just that when they're sleeping, the biochemistry, the rule set says. They're not sensitive to those signals. They, you know, they ignore those signals while they're sleeping. And then when, with some people, they don't ignore them. They actually interact with them. So I suspect it's something like, like that. Yeah, the more I talk about it, the more ideas kind of come in as to, you know, it's not a question I ever thought about before. So that probably is the way it works. Those signals are probably sent all the time. But when you sleep, for most people, their sensitivity to respond to that signal disappears, gets very, very low. Some people, it doesn't disappear far enough, so they end up getting triggered some of the time. And that be, would be a good explanation of why they don't do it all the time. It's only every once in a while, because if they're right on that threshold of where it you know, actually makes the avatar move or not, then sometimes that threshold would you know, get crossed and sometimes it wouldn't. So that would make it kind of a chancy thing. That would sometimes happen, sometimes not. Okay. Well, I guess you answered both of my questions. So uh, that's it. Thank you very much. You're welcome. <laughs> yeah, he has a good knack of answering two questions in one before you even asked it. I, yeah, it works like that. Okay, we're going to go over to Vanessa next. I see she had a little furry friend off on camera there a couple of times. Hi, Vanessa. Good to see you again. Hi, Keith. Hi, everybody. Good to see you. 
Totally so, awesome. Tom, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> um, Tom, my question is, uh, in your book, you discuss how meditation is almost universally prescribed as the first step, the doorway to understanding and exploring consciousness, mm -hmm. as well as to the attainment of spiritual growth. And then you also mentioned in your book that there are other methods, but they apply less universally, are more difficult to learn, and are much more difficult to teach. So my question is, what are those other methods? <laughs> uh, okay, I'll try to remember what it was I was thinking about when I said that. Um, well, yes, meditation, of course, can be done many ways. It can be done you know, mentally with mantras, it can be done with look, watching breath, it can be done with watching a candle flame flicker or looking into anything that's foggy, you know, whether it's the fog itself or a foggy crystal or things like that. These are things that just let the mind let go. Now, there are other, other things you can do to train the mind to let go and to, and to master your control over it. And some of those things I talk about doing, but only at later stages, like, um, you know, meditating while riding on a school bus with a whole bunch of eight-year-olds. You know, that's very challenging. That uh, that's, would be a way of meditating, but only for advanced people who have mastered the easy, you know, the easy ones first. But you could start there. You could start because let's say you're a person and you don't have a quiet environment ever. Let's say that's a rare thing in your life because maybe there's six little children in your family or something, and there's always something to do. Always, you know, there's not time to sit down and, in a quiet space for even 10 minutes. That just isn't likely to exist. It's as likely to get as interrupted as not. Well, if that's your life, then the normal meditation practices aren't going to work for you. You'd have to do something different like Put your mind in a relaxed state where it is not thinking about anything other than what it has to do for the moment. Get rid of all the extraneous thoughts and just work on taking care of those you know, six children or the other things that you might have to do. You know, so if you don't have downtime, you can still get there, even though the normal things of sitting down, be quiet, nice environment, you know, say a mantra, you just can't do those. They don't apply. So it's harder to do it without that quiet room, particularly in the beginning. But you can. You can push your way through that and learn to meditate even in a busy, um, you know, not very convenient space, even if you can't sit down, even if you have to stay walking and, and you know, stirring a pot, you know, while you do it. You can still learn to quiet your mind and let go of all the extraneous thoughts and only focus on what you need to do in that moment at that time and put everything else aside. So now you're living in the moment, in the present, without any thoughts of what you're going to do next or, well, only as much as you have to, I guess. You know, the, you have to maybe go to the next baby that's crying. But, uh, you know, you have to kind of isolate your mind from everything except what it needs to do. A harder thing to do but doable. So that was one of the things that I had in mind. I, that was for people who just don't have the ability to sit down and be quiet by themselves for a while. You know, by the time it's time to go to bed, they're exhausted. They can't sit and meditate first. You know, they need to go to bed, go to sleep, because if they're only getting probably five or six hours anyway, 
And that's not very convenient to try to say, well, I'll take a half an hour out and meditate. Well, no, you won't. You'll crash into bed, go to sleep instantly, and force yourself up in the morning. So, you know, there's enough people that are in that boat. That's why I mentioned it, so that the people who can't sit and meditate don't feel like they're left out entirely. It's just harder to do. It's a harder thing to uh, to force yourself to to deal with all of that at once. And there's probably a couple of others, if I think about it, that uh, you may be able to do to learn to quiet your mind. Um, you may just sit and uh, let music play. And while the music's playing, you know, empty your mind. Well, that's not as easy as saying a mantra. It's not as easy as, you know, as your breath, because music has got a lot of variation, and it's not just a note. You know, it's got a lot of stuff going on it, and you have a tendency. <laughs> you have a tendency to, uh, um, you know, think about the music. So it's harder to do that. But you can get in a meditation state just listening to music. That would be another way to do it. Now, people who do sports, they get into meditation states while they're practicing their sport. If what you're doing is, say, ice skating or throwing a shot put, in that time that you are kind of in the zone with your ice skating, you're really not thinking about anything else. You, the ice, are one, and you just are doing it. And you're in a meditation state at that point because you've let go of all the rest. You don't hear, you know, you don't see anybody else that's on the ice. You're not paying attention to the audience. You're not paying attention to, you know, other people who are there. You're just totally in the zone doing that thing. So you can learn to meditate through sport or, you know, a whirling dervish would spin around and which creates a little bit of a, uh, of a uh, altered state all by itself because it uh, makes you dizzy. And you can use that to help put you in a, you know, in a meditation state. There's lots of other things you can do, but they're neat. None of them are, are easier. None of them are more helpful. You know, they're all things that you can do if you need to, but uh, that's not really the way I would, you know, would, would tell people to go meditate. Great. Thank you, Tom. I appreciate that. Okay, Vanessa, we'll come back to your other questions later on. Um, listen, Tom, right now I'm going to go on to a question that's from Channel 79 on decentralized peer-to-peer -peer realities. Now, this question appears to be from last November, so apologies, uh, apologies to, uh, to them for not having asked it sooner. Um, Bitcoin is our original decentralized digital currency. As far as I understand it, it is mathematically enabling to a source of truth called a blockchain by way of cryptographic verification. This makes it extremely hard for peers to cheat, as peers can collectively agree on the blockchain and then detect and disregard fake transactions. So a client server system like a centralized bank is not needed for any consensus to occur. But the currency itself has many issues. Although there is no single point of failure, big attacks can be made on the entire network and full nodes now each each need to download an ever-growing blockchain. It is also problematically slow and complicated, and the scaling for the future is difficult and huge. Chinese Bitcoin mining farms are now dominating. I'm not going to go on to the rest of the question, uh, Tom, as he writes it out, but uh, the, the first part of his question is simplified as, so are there 100 decentralized virtual realities where each consciousness unit carries some or all virtual reality data? 
or would that be impossible or maybe just really inefficient? Um, there's very little that's impossible. I think what happens is when things are very inefficient, they just don't happen because the system isn't uh, into wasting you know, its time or resources. So it does sound very inefficient to run a system that way. It would be way, you know, uh, greater overhead to run that sort of a system. And therefore, it's unlikely that that would ever be implemented. Just not uh, not worth the, the uh, resources that it would take to do it. So, no, I don't think that kind of a system is, is one that uh, exists or would exist because it's just not a – not enough payoff. It's the same thing with the uh, many worlds falls in the same category. It's not, not that it's impossible that every time, you know, an electron changes state, we get a whole new universe. It's not impossible. It just doesn't make sense. It's not efficient. So it's not likely that that's the way reality works. All right, Tom, thank you. Um, next one from Turbo on the role of hallucinations in involving our consciousness. Uh, this is from back in January, so again, apologies to Turbo. Um, Tom, I took my elderly mother to hospital last week to get her eye cataracts into by her doctor. As I was sat in the waiting room, an elderly woman to my right had a pamphlet on a condition called Charles Bonnet Syndrome. In short, it is a condition where people that are partially or fully blind can get hallucinations. They can see patterns, animals, all sorts of things. Charles Bonnet's syndrome somehow alters constraints of the avatar, obviously, so that they can no longer receive data via their eyes. But it seems that they get additional data in the form of hallucinations. So how could hallucinations help an IUOC evolve, and what would the purpose be? Well, I guess if you were uh, blind, then what would be the purpose and advantage of being able to uh, have vision? see even though what you're seeing doesn't necessarily relate one-to-one to to what's in your reality see that would be that's what we call a hallucination i think it would help you understand seeing and perhaps it would be a first step to helping you learn to organize those visions those hallucinations to a point that they weren't just random perhaps it's an invitation for you to Try to work with that and see if you can't gain some sort of value out of that and make it not just random hallucination. Indeed, you may be able to get images of things in your environment, even though you're blind, if the system is willing to put that data there, just so you get some sense of what it's like out there, you know, in a visual sense. So that's a possibility. You see, what what we get our sense data is is data in a data stream. So the system can put any sort of data in your data stream that it wants. And if you're blind, the system can still put visual data in your data stream and you'll get that data. And now you'll have to figure out how to interpret it because you don't have a history of interpreting that data. So you don't know really what to make of it. And it seems like it's just random hallucinations, but maybe not. There may be a visual, you know, there may be information there. There may be order. There may be reason for that. And I'd say work with it and see what you can make of it if you were blind and have that. And it may be a huge advantage. That's why, you know, the question is, you know, why would that happen? What's the point? How could that help? Well, it may be visual data being put in your system for some some, uh, reason to help you learn. 
visual data that's not there because your avatar demands it with their with the rule set and their vision with eyes, but because the system gives you that visual data anyway. Wouldn't it be neat if the system actually gave you visual data, even though you weren't collecting it uh, through the rule set, just as a special gift, you might say, so that sometimes you'd get to see things or experience things visually. Uh, I don't know. You know, this is, again, you're, we're talking about things that happen in the margin, you know, things that happen to, you know, one hundredth of a percent of the people. And in a, in a digital system, that kind of stuff in the margins you know, it, uh, almost anything's possible. So work with it and find out what it means. Could be very important. Or it could just be entertaining. Doesn't sound like it's harmful. Entertaining's always good. <laughs> okay, listen, Eric, we're going back to you. You have another question for Tom. Okay, so I've seen you bring up uh, healthy, intelligent, and well-functioning people with no brain as evidence evidence against materialism, which makes sense. However, aren't these people also evidence against MBT, since according to MBT, the rule set and the physical brain set the constraints on what the avatar can do inside this VR? Uh, shouldn't these people be uh, very handicapped, according to MBT? Yes, that's right. Uh, according to the normal, you know, what happens to most people in MBT, yes, they would be very handicapped because they wouldn't have a brain, therefore they would have severe constraints, and those severe constraints would make them would make them uh, handicapped. Certainly, if they had a brain and then had some kind of accident to where their brain, you know, got damaged to that extent, then they would be very handicapped because they would now have huge constraints. So yes, that is the case. But again, we're talking about things that happen, you know, way out in the margins happens only occasionally. And in those margins, you know, we, we sometimes use the phrase, you know, if, if something can happen, it will happen. It might not happen very often, but almost everything that can happen does happen somewhere. That's just the nature of statistics. You know, it works like that. So in the margins, you can have these special cases, and I can think of a few reasons why the larger conscious system would uh, allow these special cases that don't follow the rules because you're right following the rules you know the rules would not prohibit you know would prohibit that as well it would also be a severely constrained person well in the case where nobody notices that this person's brain didn't develop see they've never they didn't do cat scans the medical people didn't notice that they had uh, usually the problem is the brain cavity fills up with spinal fluid. And because it fills up with spinal fluid, the brain has nowhere to go, you know, has, has no space to grow into. Therefore, it doesn't grow because there's no space for it. Um, that's typically the reason. And in those cases where nobody knows that, then the system could just let that go. In other words, the system could provide that normal reaction to a normal brain for that individual. You could just add that. Again, it's a digital system. This is not a fixed system. It's a digital system. So in the margins, almost anything could happen. So the, the, the system could just let that, give them the constraints, even though they don't have the brain to support it, 
it could just give them the, the usual constraints that go with having a whole brain and let that play that way. So now they have typical constraints, average constraints, if you will, or maybe a little above average, you know, maybe fewer constraints than normal, but they would just be given some functionality because nobody would know. So instead of, instead of um, having a severe retarded child, you'd have a normal child. If that was, you know, would be more efficient for the system in a sense. Otherwise, that child would have to go through then the retarded, the parents would deal with that. And if that's really not what was, you know, what this, uh, what, what these incarnations were about, that's not really going to help the parents. It's going to maybe make them de-evolve because they wouldn't deal with it very well because of the way they are. And it really wouldn't help that individual because they really wouldn't have with that little, you know, with no brain, they really wouldn't have a life other than just be kept alive, like with machines and, you know, maybe the body could be kept alive. So it's not a lot of growth situation there. And they may, the system might just say, well, let's just let that pass. We'll fill in for that. We'll give them normal constraints, even though they don't have the brain to, to do it. But nobody will notice. And then what happens is occasionally one of these people ends up in an automobile accident where they get taken to a hospital and they do a full body CAT scan to see, you know, what might be wrong with them. And they find out, oh, my God, they don't have a brain. Oh, they're a graduate student in mathematics. You know, they don't have a brain. And now it's a big uh, anomaly in the system. But it's a good anomaly to have in the system because it points a big finger at, well, that brain must not be necessary for cognitive function because here's somebody who only has a brain stem and a little lining inside the skull and they're doing really well in life. So now that means that the, the physical brain is not necessarily uh, necessary. That would make it easier for people to see that it's a simulation because only in a simulation could something like that, you know, happen. Because in the simulation, it's digital. Anything can happen. So it does point the finger that this is a VR. And for the system, that's not a bad thing. That helps people see a bigger picture. So I can see that sometimes the system wouldn't react. It would just let that person go on and give them that functionality, even though their the rule set wouldn't support it. Now, with those children that at, at birth or before birth, the Physicians are aware that they have, you know, um, cerebral spinal fluid on their in their skull, and that the brain isn't going to develop. Then those would be born and be, uh, you know, severely retarded, because that's a known fact. Now, because that's a known fact, I would, you know, it's very very likely that the rule set is going to weigh in there and say, well, they're going to be severely retarded because they didn't have their brain, you know, their brain didn't develop properly. So in that case, the rule says wins. In the other case where nobody actually knows, I can see the system might want to cheat a little just because it makes everything work more efficiently and uh, doesn't create probably the, the regression because the problem's too hard to deal with for the parents and the, and the individual. So they've got a lot of time and effort goes into not likely to learn much and maybe even backslide some. So that's that's my thought. But you're absolutely right. In the in the normal sense, MBT would say, "Whoa, there's a you know, there's a lot of constraints there." But it's a it's a digital system.
The system doesn't have to abide by those rules. It can do whatever it wants, whatever it thinks most efficient for the entropy reduction in the system over the long term. That's what it'll do. And there's a very low probability that anybody would ever notice that that person didn't have a brain, except the rare event when one of them gets a CAT scan for some other reason. And that's probably a one in 10,000 kind of a thing or maybe less. So I can see why the system would be inclined to cheat every once in a while. And even when they get caught cheating, it's actually not a bad thing because it helps everybody see it's a bigger reality. It must be virtual. Otherwise, those kinds of things couldn't happen in the margins. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Thank you. All right. So I'm going to move swiftly on to a question from forum user JR Stokes 53. Uh, Hi, Tom. I have a question regarding free will. You mentioned that new IUOCs can be created by copying and pasting. So I was wondering, if two identical IUOCs were created and, from the moment of creation, separately put into identical scenarios, would they react in exactly the same way, making exactly the same choices? Because there are no different variables. And if so, could this really be called free will, as it seems predetermined by the starting conditions? And if this is so, does that mean then that what we feel as free will is just our consciousness interacting with the information of our reality that we are already in? No. Um, the, the mistake that was made here in this, you know, talking about the logic of the question, is that if they were put in the exact same environment, they would not make the exact same choices because each one has free will. So because they have free will, it's impossible for them to make all the same choices, even though they would be uh, have all the same potential, if you will. That potential put in, put in an environment in two, two individuals, both with free will, will make different choices just because they do have free will. So you would never have two that would be the same. So the answer to the question isn't that it kind of shows that there is no free will. What it shows is that that doesn't happen because there is free will. You took me by surprise there, Tom. That, you, you finished that one much quicker than I expected. I'm sorting through a bunch of questions. I'm, I'm so sorry. Uh, Vanessa, you ready? Yes, I'm ready. Get, get, get me out of the hole I'm in now, please. <laughs> Well, just in addition to that last question that you were answering, um, if it was a copy and paste, so it was two IUOCs with the exact same quality of consciousness, wouldn't, wouldn't they make the same decisions? Or? No, they'd have the same, they would have the same decision space. Well, first of all, this is a theoretical question. In the, in the real world, in the, in the real uh, larger conscious system, I doubt that it would just copy and paste to identical. There's probably some variation there, some randomness that would change the variables a little. I doubt that it would be identical, but you know that wouldn't really be a, a smart move on the larger kinds of system part where they could just take a couple of random numbers and there'd be little differences between them that would you know, make them unique. But let's say that it did make two you know, identical IUOCs and they had an identical environment, but they have their own free will. So even though in that first moment where they go into this identical environment, they'd have the identical array of choices, the identical decision space, but there's no reason why they would choose the same decision. 
You see, so let's say they get in this identical environment and there's a hundred different things they might do or react to or walk to or look at or whatever. They wouldn't all make, there's no reason that they would make the same choices. So, you know, we do it really simple. You know, they're in, they wake up in an environment, you know, they suddenly, you know, they're identical. They get in an environment and there's a room with things pasted all over the walls. Okay, now it's kind of a, you know, not all of them seem to be equally important. One of them would go to the right and look at that thing. The other one may go to the left and look at that thing. Well, now they've already made different choices and have a different environment and a different whatever. So the one that went to the right and looked at that thing, it may be a very troubling thing he looked at. So he may run out of the room crying. And the other one would wonder, what in the heck's going on? You see, they're just, it's just different because they have free will. So they, they will make different choices, even if they have the same decision space. And every time they do something even slightly different, that will lead to more differences and it'll lead to more differences. So um, they get more and more unique as time goes on. Yeah, that makes sense. See, I was coming from the understanding, which I still think is true, that our quality of consciousness drives the choices that we make. But then there's a lot of choices that we make that are kind of insignificant, like looking left or looking right, and then what we happen to see. Yeah, all sorts of things. Yeah, there's lots and lots of choices that we make, and if those would all be identical, no way. They'd all be very different. And little differences, then, you know, as time goes on, lead to bigger differences and bigger differences. So the one of them looked at something scary, ran out of the room. Now, they're off on a totally different thing. You know, maybe that was whatever, and that other one never sees that. So... You know, now they're not even emotionally the same anymore. And that emotional difference will lead to make different, more different choices. And so little details can start a split, you know, where things go two ways. And even though they're still very close together, the further out they go, the further apart they get. And that's why, that's why you would end up with uniqueness in any case. It's because free will would, would uh, create that uniqueness. Yes, there's lots of stuff that's very close to random that happens. And all of that would be just a little different. Okay. Okay. Thank you for that. So the question that I had or that I have is I know that you talk about having um, that this is your big toe that you've created and we all need to form our own toe, our own theory of everything, because if Mm -hmm. we take on your big toe, it's just creating another belief and that would go against being open-minded and skeptic. I find myself definitely, I, your model makes so much sense for me and everything just clicks and now I know my purpose and my mission here and it makes so much sense that I, I can kind of see myself now adopting your big toe as a belief um, and, I, and I'm now I'm, I'm worried. I'm like, oh no, I don't want to take on a new <laughs> I can feel myself get like defensive when people don't agree with it and, and that's definitely the signs of a belief. So any help around and this is actually why I asked the first question in a sense of what can I do to explore my own consciousness to, to create my own toe because I'm not a physicist I don't know the nature of reality the way you do which is why I look up to you so much but I think that I need to explore my own consciousness in order to get um, to develop my own toe um, okay well so- what what you should do Vanessa is take my theory and take it as a possibility so, all right, okay. this is this is the MBT, and MBT might be right, but it might not. I need to verify it with my own experience. 
So you can hold it out as a model, and then your own experience will either agree or not agree with that model. And when your experience does not agree with that model, that's a, that's a good thing too, because now you have to look at that experience and say, well, why? You know, why is my interpretation different and why doesn't that? So it gets you, you know, introspective. It gets you asking why and what the connections are. And you may come to the conclusion that your model's better. And that's good too. Just keep working with it. But see, keep everything at a, as a possibility. Okay, MBT gives you, a, gives you a model and a possibility, but it doesn't give you the truth because it's not your truth. It gives you my truth. It gives yeah. you my experience, but it doesn't give you your experience. So you still have to, you know, don't give it a probability of one. Give it a probability of, of you know, 0.9, if you like, or 0.8, and figure that you will have to verify it with your own experience. And as you grow and you have more experience, if it if you verify it and say, ah, okay, this works. Yeah, I can see how that fits the theory, and ah, this fits the theory too. Well, then maybe you'll make it a point nine nine, you know. But don't make it ever a one. Just always say that it's it's a it's a theory, it's a possibility, and I'll see how my own experience fits. That way, what you call you know what your experience then defines your truth. And MBT is not your truth, but parts of it will become your truth as your own experience verifies it, you see. And that's the way to look at it. So don't uh, get the idea that it is the truth and that you should defend it to people who have, you know, different ideas. Uh, you know, you can have conversations with people. That's good. But they need to go off in their own way. They need to see things from their own viewpoint. And if they, you know, see it differently, well, that's just where they are. And maybe with discussion or maybe with some reading, they'd begin to also see that MBT, um, you know, seems to fit their experience as well. Or maybe they won't, but they have to get there on their own and they have to do that in their own way. So it's not a, it shouldn't be a belief. It should just be a, a let's see how my experience fits this model. Mm -hmm. Okay. Thank you for that. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. The biggest takeaway that I'm finding from the model is that my purpose here is to lower entropy, and I do that by letting go of fear. And so I'm I'm really just trying. So sorry. Another little question is that can I then expedite this whole process of lowering entropy and growing up by encouraging more fear into my life and doing things that just scare the shit out of me? Because then theoretically I would be overcoming a lot of fear. <laughs> That's <laughs> depends on the situation. That could be a very bad idea, you know, yeah. as well. You know, you could say, well, all right, I'm going to do everything that's scary. I'm going to jump out of airplanes, you know, and uh, I'll do uh, one of these stunts where you jump out of the airplane without a parachute and somebody else jumps out after you, then flies down, you know, skydives down to you and gives you the chute and then you put it on and open it before you hit the ground, you know, and well, I, I could learn a lot about fear. None of that's necessary. <laughs> You don't need to take risk. Now, on the other hand, if it's, well, I really need to know, learn how to take care of fear, so I'm going to go visit my Aunt Susie. You know, Aunt Susie and I just don't get along. You know, we have problems. Uh, we just get on each other's nerves. She's always very critical and sarcastic and da 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 da, da. But I'm going to go visit Aunt Susie, and I'm not going to let her get my goat. I'm not going to let her pull my chain. I'm going to be civil. I'm going to smile. 
I'm going to know that that's just Aunt Susie and that's okay. It doesn't have anything to do with me. And now that's a challenge that would be worth going and doing just rather than avoiding Aunt Susie because, you know, there's always a clash. So you just don't ever see each other. So things like that, yes, if you think you're up to it, then go do it, you know, push yourself to see uh, how you react in that situation. Um, but, uh, you know, don't take risks or do things that are, you know, that are threatening or, or scary just to deal with the fear. The fears that are natural and come to you in your life, like a real cranky Aunt Susie, well, that's a natural one for you to go out and, and deal with. But don't go out of your way. Don't go out of your way to court that sort of thing. You know, there's enough of it that will come to you naturally, you know, in your life. You don't have to go looking for more. Mm, yeah, be smart about it. Don't, don't be stupid. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right, be smart about it. Okay, thank you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, we're going to be seeing Vanessa uh, in August. We look forward to that very much. Um, when we do go on the road with you again, Tom, we aren't giving you much of a break, I'm afraid. Been home a little bit, trying to get caught up, but we will be taking you on the road for the MBT from head to toe events. Portland, Oregon, Saturday, the 5th of August, and we'll see Vanessa the following weekend, Vancouver, British Columbia, Saturday, the 12th of August. You can go to the future events page of MBT Events for more details. Okay, next question is from Rando. Uh, the education system. What, in your opinion, is wrong with the education system in the Western culture? And what changes would you make to the system if you had the chance? Oh boy, that's a big question. I could give it a very simple answer. What's wrong with the education system, at least the one I know? I don't know about Western world. I don't only know about the one that I've run into. And I'd say almost everything. It would be a much shorter answer to say what's right with the education system. We could maybe do that with maybe just one or two words, but the problem with our education system is that the least effective way to teach children things, anything, is by lecturing them. Well, our education system's built on a lecture. That is the worst way that you can get a child to learn anything, you see. So it's based on the whole wrong, you know, on the wrong idea. Another thing is that our system is not only based on lecture, but it's one teacher to roughly, you know, 30 kids, 20 to 30, something like that. Well, that means that what you're really teaching children is to sit down and be quiet. You're teaching children not to get interactive, not to have fun, not to, you know, do you're teaching them to sit down, be quiet, and listen, and try to remember what I say. Well, those are lessons that are really unnatural to children. Sitting down and being quiet isn't what children do. So now we're asking children to force themselves into some kind of unnatural state when they go to school. That doesn't help our learning either. Um, you know, that's a lot harder on little boys than it is little girls. Little girls can sit down and be quiet and at least act like they're paying attention much more easily than little boys can. Little boys are all over the place. They're very physical. They want to do. They got to act. They got to move. And that's very hard. So then we teach little boys that what they need to do is act like little girls. And then they'll be okay. That's not very helpful for little boys growing up either, that they uh, really aren't very good the way they are. They need to be like little girls. 
So there's lots of things that are very damaging to our children in the education system, in the typical public education system that I have experienced. Um, Education needs to be organic. It needs to be whole. It needs to work with a child's natural curiosity and inquisitiveness. Having a bunch of kids all doing the same thing at the same time is not an effective way to teach children. Children need to be given the freedom to do the things that interest them, the things that uh, are important to them. And the adult needs to find a way to make that activity educational, you see. Well, now, you can't do that with one teacher to 30 children. That just doesn't work. All right, so that's that's the lecture system, and that's a really poor system. So the educational system just starts with a lot of bad ideas about how to educate children. Now, as the children aren't children anymore, as they go, you know, they grow up and they become, you know, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, and whatever, now sitting down in a lecture is not such a horrible thing. At that point, that sort of teaching makes a lot more sense. But up until, you know, the 15, 16, 18, 20, that idea makes no sense whatsoever. What you end up producing is children who are afraid to be themselves. They learn to, to sit down and be quiet. In other words, give up their you know, give up their their own sense of self, their own self-esteem, their own free will, and obey the authority. So we have a bunch of little automatons that are very obedient to authority, and that works just fine if what you're trying to do is maybe produce a lot of automatons that do what you tell them. You know, if you want a bunch of little robots, that's good. Um, and I guess if you're a politician... Uh, that would make a lot of sense. You would like to have a populace that would do what they're told rather than one that thought for themselves. The downside is they have very little, when they come out of our system, they have very little ability to do critical thinking because critical thinking is not only discouraged, it's punished. Critical thinking is, well, teacher, I did it a different way. That's not the way I got the answer. I got it this way. And they're told, here is where you're supposed to get the answer. No, that's the wrong interpretation. Don't think for yourself. Learn what I tell you. That's what's going to be on the test. Well, when you have a whole nation full of people who can't think critically, you create a lot of problems in your culture. Right away, you know, you don't have an electorate that is informed because the electorate can't think critically. They can't tell, you know, you know, a, a good candidate from a bad candidate. They've been told and they've been punished for having their own opinion about the way things work all the way up until they got the later years of high school and into college. So that's the problem with the educational system. We need to have an organic system where the children can interact in creative ways, where learning is fun, where the things they do in school are not only educational, but neat. You know, they like it. They go to school because they want to go to school, not because it's a it's like a daycare for older kids, a a prison where they have to go and, you know, follow the rules, but rather a place that's a lot of fun because they learn neat things. If you have that attitude, then all the rest of their life, they would be able to function by learning new things. Learning would be an enjoyable, fun thing to do. And it isn't. 
lot of kids get out of school and learning is one of the you know least fun things they've ever done in their life. You know, school is a is a burden to put up with, not a joy to gain from. And that's a problem. That's what wastes kids' minds more than anything else is that kind of a brain dead attitude and an inability to think. So that's my, you know, that's my problem with the educational system. It's got the wrong approach and it actually does more harm than good. If you just let the kids stay home and, uh, you know, learn, learn there, they probably do better. Even if they only spent two or three hours learning in a day, they'd probably do better. Now, on the other hand, would the parents be uh, able to teach them to read and write and do the things that it takes to get along in this society? Well, see, now that's a problem. The education system does do that. We've got probably, um, I don't know, an 80 or 90 percent literacy anyway, whereas go back before public school and there was maybe only a 20 percent literacy. So it has some advantages. It's not that the whole system is, is, is an evil system. It's just not a very efficient system, and it overlooks some very important things like attitude and that teaching people to sit down and shut up is not necessarily a good lesson for people. They need to learn to express themselves and be themselves, which if you're a, you know, an eight-year-old boy, that means activity. That means making noise. That means running around. That means being physical. Well, then don't push little boys to sit down and be quiet. Let them teach them how to learn in other ways. You see, and we don't do that. We've got a one size fits all education system. And the people who are really gifted suffer. The people who really struggle and are a little slower suffer. And the ones in the middle are given a plain vanilla pablum for education and they suffer too. So it's a hard problem. You don't have necessarily responsible adults that will teach their children the basics because those people went through public school themselves and uh, they don't really have much uh, interest in education. I don't know, you know, I can't give you a good way to fix it, but I know there are some school techniques that seem to work very well for young children, like Montessori schools. You know, they let the children uh, work with each other. They, you know, it's it's not like everybody's going to sit down and learn this lesson today. They learn at their own rate, and they find activities that are fun to do that are also educational. Though, so how do you do that at you know the fifth and sixth and seventh and eighth grade levels? Well, it probably can be done. It just takes a little ingenuity. So it's not that there isn't any other way to do it. There are lots of other ways to do it that we could do better. We just don't because it generally would take a more educated teacher and it would take more teachers than just one to 30. See, so it costs more to do it better. That's the way it is with a lot of things. If you want to do it better, then it's going to cost more resources. Evidently, we're not willing to spend any more resources. So we end up with a very poor educational system. And if we just spent more resources without changing the system, we just have a, you know, a more expensive, poor educational system. So just throwing money at it isn't the answer. It's you got to rethink what you're doing and what makes a child educated and what education means. Education isn't training. It's not that you've trained the child, but you've educated them. You've given them choices. You've given them a, 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 an independence of thinking. That's what education is about. It's not training.
we're not training them to be, you know, to fill a slot in a job. That's not the point. It's to open their minds, broaden their perspectives, give them information that they can then apply and be critical with. That's probably more than anybody wanted to hear, but uh, one of my pet peeves is education, so you got me on that one. <laughs> but, you know, Tom, just as a footnote, it's not just the USA, is it? I mean, it's the same thing in the United Kingdom. I've talked to you before about my son and how the school system in the UK and probably many other countries wants to shoehorn children into being exactly the same, identical models of a perfect student. And every child is different. Every child needs to learn at their own rate. They just did a project in, in, in the UK. They had new special schools. They spent five years on this plan, millions and millions of pounds, and it ended up not working um, because the wrong children were going to the wrong schools, and they, they didn't know. They didn't have the knowledge to know what a child actually needed. So there needs to be a complete overhaul in the UK and in, in many other places. 